We respectfully acknowledge the traditional owners of country throughout Australia where this podcast was recorded and recognise their continuing connection to land, waters and culture. We pay our respects to their elders, past, present and emerging. Hi there, I'm Daniel Moore and you're listening to Season 3 of the Hearing Architecture Podcast, proudly sponsored by Brickworks. At the moment, we're talking to building environment professionals about gender equity and how women experience the architecture and construction space as our cultural awareness shifts beyond the elementary family model. Our guest in this episode is Dr. Jess Murphy, who is the convener of the Champions of Change Architecture Group, which was formed in 2015 to address the acute underrepresentation of women in the senior levels of the architecture profession at the time. The group now has 14 practices actively participating to increase the representation and influence of women at the highest levels of the profession. Jess shares how important it is for practices to be transparent about what's happening with regards to gender equity, the change that can come from formal and informal leadership, and the effect that the systems inherent in architecture have on people that lead to so many people leaving the profession. I'll now hand over to Sally Sue, who is an Imagine representative based in New South Wales. Let's jump in. Afternoon, Jess. Hello, Sally. Great to have you in our studio today. It's really a privilege and you know, an honour to be able to invite you to join us on Hearing Architecture Season 3. Thank you for the opportunity. We want to start by introducing the topic. Today's topic will be on gender pay gap, but really about exploring that topic in all manners. And uh, we love your work because I've come to know you through Champions of Change. It's a great committee that explores gender equity and many more topics associated with it. To share with our audience, is it possible for you to roughly introduce your professional role and how you've come to work with our group? Sure. So um, I've got an academic background in business leadership, so an adjunct professor of business leadership through the Australian Graduate School of Leadership. And previous to that, I worked in corporate, so almost 20 years at one of the big banks. About eight years ago now, I decided to break away and develop my own boutique consultancy group and part of that is the convener role for Champions of Change Architecture Group and really focused around leadership, inclusion, strategy and innovation all coming together under that offering. So that's a little bit about me. This is amazing because as we talk about gender pay gap and the differences between that, females or males or any other identities you identify with, we understand that it can be spoken about in terms of financial pay, leadership roles, and just in general careers and professional life. If you were to explore that topic, how would you begin to give it a framework on one perspective and how to understand what gender pay gap is and uh, where is the discussion today? Great question. I think, first of all, I think we need to understand that the pay gap itself encompasses a whole range of different elements. And as you rightly pointed out, it's not just what you take home in terms of what appears in your bank account each fortnight or month, but actually opportunity and things like, you know, investment in development, superannuation, a whole range of different pieces. So, you know, all of that information is actually really easy to find on resources like the Workplace Gender Equality Agency, where all employers who have over 100 employees must 
report and report on their gender pay gap, and that's to provide transparency in the system because it's an important factor that, you know, in 2022, who would have thought that we're still having to have these conversations? But the reality is that we are. And my observation in the work that I do across industry is that it's not necessarily intentional. And in fact, most of when you dig below the covers, it's unintentional, but just not a lot of understanding around little decisions that can have massive impacts on people's pay and therefore opportunity as they make their way through their careers. So if you were to further it, as you talk about with your work, you are able to reach many different professions and today our audience may be mainly interested in architecture, but it would be good to table a few perspectives on how it varies so that we can broaden our understanding of where the issue lies today and where the trajectory is leading to. Uh, well, so the good news is that the gap is closing across industries. The bad news is, is the rate of change. So year on year, so from last year to this year, based in Australia, across all professions, based on the Commonwealth's reporting, it closed by 0.5 of a percent. Yeah. Closing but not enough, as you described. <laughs> yeah, the, the pace of change is definitely yeah. not there. So Jess, can you share with us on the latest statistics on gender pay gap across the industry? It would be very interesting to know the status quo and where we are sitting currently. Yeah, well, so the stats came out in February 2022 and nationally the average pay gap from a percentage perspective is 13.8%, which equates to around $255 per week that women earn less than male peers. Now, what's interesting, I think, is that the agency that does the reporting has broken it down by location in Australia as well. And so one of the key things to remember is that, you know, they can slice and dice the data. And what's, I think, quite concerning is that over in Western Australia, the pay gap sits at 21.2%. The state with the lowest pay gap is South Australia sitting at 7.4% and that's based on where the employees are located in terms of their reporting. For architecture in particular, it sits under the professional scientific and technical services industry code and unfortunately that collective has the highest pay gap sitting at 24.4%. So just to be clear, it's not architecture specifically, it's the fact that it sits under professional scientific and technical services. And as a whole, that particular industry category is at 24.4%. So some pretty compelling reasons in terms of current state of play around why we need to focus on closing that gender pay gap and why it's so important that we actually acknowledge that it does exist and we start to unpick what's going on below the surface and some of those potentially unintentional decisions that are being made and the impact that has on people. That is a very interesting statistic update because like you described, we're slowly, slowly getting there, but we're not moving at a rate that we'd like to see across the board. And this is a long topic that we've described and spoken about for a very long time. Even in Champions of Change, we've been auditing our pay gaps for a very long time. So to broaden this discussion, how do you think we should begin to approach it in 2022 to have a meaningful discussion about it? Because statistics only can summarise an aspect of our profession. Yeah, absolutely. And I think the key one is around transparency. 
And so, you know, all of us have the ability to ask questions and to disclose. And so, you know, some of the, the things that I would be, I guess, aware of from an individual perspective is that you have the right to ask, what is my salary compared to everyone else's? And there should be transparency in the system where the person that you're asking that question of can give you that answer. And then you need to unpick not just the, the first line level of what the take-home salary is, but, you know, think about other things that play into that. So, you know, career leave, you know, if you've got annual promotional activities in play, who's missing out because they might be on leave in a certain period, so when they come back they've missed that opportunity. They're all the different elements that can come into play for, for individuals and for organisations. And I think there's this uncomfortableness about talking about money and salary. Some industries have taken the approach where they actually have band levels. So there is transparency built into the system so that you know if you're you know, fourth year out of uni, here's the scale that you should be expecting. There are ways that industries like construction have really tried to turn their head on what was a significant pay gap for them. So I would encourage transparency in the system. And for the leaders of architectural practices, that's really easy to do. It's really easy to have frank and open conversations around these things because all you're trying to do is enable equity. And if that's a struggle for you, then I guess my bigger question is why? That is a very interesting way to approach it and I think it is fundamental because uh, in our previous discussions and many of our discussions with our colleagues and peers, we often talk about finding the right language to speak of our colleagues and topics and many other associated topics such as sponsorship, career planning and pathways are all mechanisms that we're beginning to explore to kind of minimise the barriers that exist in a workplace and our work culture. So you often talk about the importance of stepping up and being able to have that conversation. Are you able to provide a few examples where you've noticed that that's the first step that uh, our industry is trying to get a grapple of still in order to progress? Yeah, so I think the first point of reference is that people can't read your mind. So although you've got that internal conversation going on up here, until you are able to articulate that to someone, they don't know that that's a concern for you. They can't read your mind. And to the leaders, you know, we take for granted what we know and we don't sometimes appreciate that there's a whole lot of unknown for people, particularly at the early stages of their career, around that how you might go about things. So I think there's a reciprocation required around, first of all, people asking, articulating what it is they don't know and finding a way to frame that up to ask someone that they trust, tell me about how you go about this. You know, what's the right way to approach this? How did this work for you? It's a concern for me, I want to understand more so I can approach this in a really, you know, professional manner with credibility. So asking people is the first step. And for those formal and informal leaders that may get asked that question, you know, help others understand that this is a learning curve and that the more you ask, the better you get, but you may not get what you want up front. And that's okay, because what you need to ask is, why not? What's holding me back? You need to unpick those questions so that then you can start to frame up, okay, well, if, for example, a pay increase this year isn't possible for these reasons, what needs to change for next year? 
and be really open and honest around, well, you know, if I need to demonstrate these capabilities, if I need to, you know, win this type of business, make sure that you hold yourself and the person who's giving that advice accountable and follow up on a, you know, three monthly basis to say, here's how I'm tracking to do that. And my experience is that if you are proactive, if you demonstrate your commitment to what it is that you want to do, you don't let it fall off the radar, and you do it in a way that's respectful and not being a nag, you know, because it is your credibility at play here, people are far more likely to take you seriously. That's amazing because you touched on leadership and I think what was important was you mentioned leadership in its formal and informal manner and I think I'm passionate about exploring that across all tiers because we're really helping women and everybody grow in our professional environment and with that I think it's interesting to explore how growth happens, how recognition is allocated to all team members that might be formal or informal leaders and everyone's growth rate is different. How do you see that affecting the gender pay gap and where, how it can help minimise barriers along the way to allow for a consistent um, progression? So let me start with the first proposition from my end, which is that all of us, whether you hold a formal title or not, are leaders. And so that's why I term formal leaders, which have that hierarchical title, and informal leaders, which is everyone else. And we all have our, our own role to play in demonstrating leadership. We can't abdicate that responsibility to anyone else. That's something that we need to take responsibility and accountability for. So in terms of the gender pay gap, I guess my advice for younger professionals coming up would be to really focus on not just this take home salary, but ways that you can negotiate other development opportunities. So, for example, I remember when I was making my way up the ladder and I put forward my case to, to have a salary increase. The salary increase was basically, yes, we agree with you, but budget cycle has passed, so we need to hold off for the next 12 months. And I said, well, that's fine, but what's going to retain me in the next 12 months? Can you invest in some type of development for me? In fact, here's a workshop or here's a course that I'd really like to do that will complement not only myself, but also the work I'm doing. So it's a value add to yourself. And so what I was able to do is to negotiate a development opportunity, which in honesty was far more valuable in terms of the skill set and the capability that I was learning rather than a financial dimension. So my advice for young professionals is to go in with an open mind around things that can really add value to you to help accelerate you up the ladder, but also two years, five years down the track, what are going to be the key things that you need to demonstrate to get you those promotion opportunities to make sure that you stand out from the crowd? And sometimes, you know, money is important, but experience can play a, a much bigger role in opportunities, people that you meet, etc. So don't just focus on the bottom line, I guess is my, my piece there. There's opportunities to look around a whole range of things and it costs money, but people investing in development that believe in you and see your potential, that can have a really great impact on you and them. That's a very good advice because I think it shares with our younger audience on the opportunities and the way we can articulate value and how we contribute to the profession because more often than not I hear female colleagues saying that they are unable to compete because of purely based on starting points or even an ability to be able to project and rise up where 
I know it might be a general assumption here, but men often ask for a pay equivalent of what they have yet to achieve. And some may say that women will wait till that they have reached that level in order to ask that. And I think we've spoken about sponsoring and supporting talent and providing opportunities for potential growth rather than waiting for that to happen. Can you share with us a bit more on how that is played out across different organisations and professions? Yes, great question. So let me talk about the concept of sponsorship first. So if a coach talks to you, a mentor talks with you, normally over coffee, sharing their experiences, here's what I've done in this situation, etc., etc. A sponsor talks about you in audiences you normally don't get access to. And they're fighting for you to get those opportunities. They're the ones that are showcasing your work when you're not in the room, your value when you're not in the room. And my experience is that one of the reasons why the pace of change is so slow in getting more women moving up through the ranks across all industries, not just architecture, is that we have what we call this affinity bias or also known as mini-me syndrome, where the people up the top identify, have an affinity towards people that look like them, have had the same experience as them. So i.e. we've got a number of very senior influential men at the top of architecture and they immediately identify with up and coming men and that's human nature. Sponsorship and the work that we're doing with leaders at that level is to get them to look at talent in all its forms and not just take the easy path, the one that's most comfortable for them. So for younger professionals starting out, a couple of key things. It's great to have mentorship. Don't get me wrong, that's really valid, as is coaching. But if you want to accelerate through, then it's about finding a sponsor. And I would really encourage you to find someone different to you. And it's going to be awkward to create that you know, exposure and that connection up front. But when you do, that person will be the person that goes in to fight for you, you know, to help propel you forward if you've got that relationship. And so I guess my experience is that those that have sponsorship tend to have a much easier pathway, whether that's promotion, pay increases, opportunities, networks, because they've got someone of influence batting for them. Those without it might be just as equally capable, even more so, just as talented, even more so. But unless you've got someone in your corner batting for you, you're not having a voice at the table where it really matters. And so it's important that all talent gets access to sponsorship. And you know some of the work that we're doing in the Champions of Change group is to get senior male leaders comfortable with sponsoring talent different to them, i.e. women. And so if we can help do that, then we can help bring up more diverse talent through the ranks. But also you've got someone in your corner batting for you when the opportunity comes or you know when a promotion opportunity comes or when a pay conversation is happening you've got someone there batting for you and what we tend to find again it's a generalization is that you know because we've we've got um, potential that you were speaking to again for human nature reasons men are just given that card people see the potential in them it's a generalization women have to prove themselves and so again, opportunity gets lost. It's not an equitable playing field. The employee experience is not equal because of that. And it's our biases that play into that. Same with you know, pay increases. There needs to be real consideration given to you know, things like parental leave, 
taking time out to care for others. And at the moment, it's a very, you know, status quo type model in play. The more we move to a shared care model where, you know, parenting is seen as parenting, not maternity leave or paternity leave, it's seen as parenting, carer's leave is seen as carer, then I think that's when we'll get real change happening. That's a great uh, segue to the next question I really wanted to ask because I think we have a very general audience here that is interested in the topic and it is really good to have you introduce the sponsorship idea because I think prior to meeting you and prior to joining Champions of Change, I was not quite aware of what that could entail. And I think seeing it in action now around uh, the profession is a very exciting um, thing to see and I think I can see a reason why we should all be talking about it and promoting it. You touched on parenting, and I think I wanted to share where I'm absolutely passionate about the topic, not being a parent myself, but I have now got quite a few close friends, colleagues that have benefited from the cultural shift in how we approach parental leave and also the idea of parenthood because around me I have fathers that would love to push a parent to come and meet me for lunch whilst they're on their parental leave and with that I think it's a great shift because I'm also starting to see men going to childcare to pick up their kids instead of the mothers getting the call. Is there more that we can do from here on to really take this home and allow these little barriers to be completely eliminated? There's so much we can do. And, and <laughs> you know, the reality is that it actually starts with us. Like, for example, I was sitting in a session, I was on a panel event the other day and one of the audience members asked a question and actually shared their experience in asking a question and, and it was a gentleman of Indian heritage. He was, I would suggest probably mid to late 50s as a guesstimate and he spoke about the bias that he faced and the backlash that he faced when he took parental leave in his organisation 10 years ago. Now immediately through my mind the first thing that came into play was like questions around geez that's unusual for that cultural heritage for you know, someone of it was my assumption someone of Indian heritage who's a male taking time out to care for kids. 10 years ago mm -hmm. and then I realized that hang on this is my bias at play here and this is what we need to break down that that actually becomes the norm that it's not surprising to hear those stories because it was a surprise to me to hear that story from 10 years ago and I guess all of us plays that responsibility when we're surprised or when we have these reactions of like well, why would he be taking parental leave or you know we need to challenge ourselves and actually open up opportunities because it's an individual's decision and all we're doing is casting our own judgment across that. And that's where we have the opportunity to stop and to pause and to go, hang on a sec, that's my judgment coming across that. That's my bias playing out. Am I actually being reasonable and fair in my judgment process? No, I'm not. You know, it was a biased view that was leading me to go, oh, that's surprising. So I think all of us have a role to play to not only respond respectfully to people's choices is the first part, but also feel comfortable enough to put our own choices forward without judgment. And all of that requires psychological safety in terms of the type of leadership and the type of sense of belonging that people have to disclose what's going on for them and then to know that they're not going to be judged for that. 
That's amazing because I think everyone has good intentions and I, I would say that I have seen a growth in this area for a very long time now and I could even reference that. In architecture, we're handing out awards for best in practice now and I think that's a very positive note because I think we understand workplace has a role to play and culture matters as well. It's very good to see that get recognised. Do you see a difference in the clients you work with, the professions and organisation, and how scale may play a part? If the organisation was large, we can assume they have more resources, more policies and framework to implement all of these great initiatives. Whilst what happens if it's a bit smaller and we do want to you know, have them also come on board to join us on this journey? Yeah, great question. And then I bring in a perspective that, you know, I do work with organisations that have 200,000 employees globally. And I also do work, obviously, within architecture where we've got the likes of Hassel and Woods Bagot. But, you know, someone, you know, them with 900 employees and seen as a very large practice in Australia compared to the employee employers that I work with at 200,000, there's a big scale of difference there. And so I guess my perspective is that it doesn't matter your size, that it's, it's all subjective to what you're used to within the industry. What I think is interesting is that there's assumptions made that the larger you are, the more resources you have, so it should be easier. And on the flip side of that, the smaller you are, the more nimble you are, so it should be easier to affect change. And both of those are realities that have their own challenges within them. And I think it's important to note that, you know, the only way to make change, to affect change, is again to take that responsibility on ourselves. You know, if something's not working for you, regardless of the size of the organisation, you should be having a courageous conversation with your next level up and saying, not only here's the challenge that I have, but here's a potential solution. You've got to come with the solution or potential solutions to help challenge culture, challenge the status quo. And I think that's appropriate response, no matter what size practice you work in, whether it's the, the two person one or the you know 200 person one, each of us needs to take accountability around what we're taking responsibility for to, to action change. And do it in a way where you bring not only the challenge, but some solutions to it, because no one likes someone coming to them with a problem without the solution. So think about, you know, challenging the status quo, disrupting what the norm is. And for the formal leaders, think about being open to doing things the new way. The old way isn't the best way, necessarily. Jess, as we have spoken about the topic quite in depth now, I think it's good to let's pause for a moment to rerun through these key terms because more often than not, we approach the topic differently and we get given all these technical terms. So could you elaborate a bit more on the difference between gender pay gap and equal pay? Yeah, great question. And they are confusing terms there. So gender pay gap is the difference between the average earnings of women and men in the workforce. And it's a key measure of women's economic position as a whole in comparison to men, be that at a national level, an industry level, or an organisational level. And the reporting that the Workplace Gender Equality Agency asks from employers with over 100 employees is to measure that, and so the organisation can have an indication of their gender pay gap at an organisational level. So that's gender pay gap. Equal pay is something different. Equal pay is when two people are being paid equally for the work of the same or comparable value. It's unlawful in Australia for workplaces not to do so 
but we know it's really common. So, for example, in architecture, a male and a female architecture, same amount of years, same exposure to different projects, if they are paid differently, even though they've had the same experience and exposure, that is not equal pay. That's really good because I think uh, the latter term that we talked about is something that we might not be very clear on because I think a level playing field here that we often describe is that it all starts from the beginning. And I think we often touch on it all happens at the beginning where it begins to shift already. If the inequality is not there, then we have less chance of levelling it out as we progress in our careers. So you have often give advice to how that should be reviewed and I think that may start in our industry normally by recruitment process to young graduates fresh out of university. Can you tell us a bit more about that? Yeah, well, the research is clear that gender bias comes into play for women, unfortunately, from when they enter the workforce as grads. So even though they've got exactly the same amount of experience as their male counterparts, i.e. zero, they're literally coming out of university, they get offered less than their male counterparts. So it happens at the very first step of taking career progress into the workforce. And so already there is an inequitable pay gap purely because they're a woman. And so it's really, really important for organisations to understand that they have a responsibility, as does the hiring manager, to make sure, regardless of whether people are asking for it or not, that both men and women are offered the same remuneration. Just because a woman doesn't ask for it doesn't mean that you should pay her less because she hasn't asked for it, which is generally what tends to happen. Men are much more robust and forthcoming and putting themselves out there. And so women tend to sit back. That's a generalisation. But if you are the hiring manager, you need to treat people with equity. And that means acknowledging that if you're hiring for the same role, you should be paying for that same role. That is really good because I think as we talk about having a strategy implemented in the workforce and organisation level to begin to minimise this gap, that's a very critical process that we must implement because it really does help look after the general cohort and allow for an equal opportunity across the board. Because as we shift along, even as we enter the profession, um, there will be moments in here where as a professional, you will begin to review as life stages shift. More often than not, you will review whether your remuneration is living up to what you require to provide for the family. And I think an interesting point to touch on is specific to architecture, it might be more for women, but it actually happens across the board where if that gender pay gap or remuneration isn't to the level that one is satisfied with, many shift across to associated professions. So we often call it where we're losing a lot of talent in our industry. How do you see that play out and how do you see that be adjusted if we could retain it and allow for more opportunities to promote talent in our workforce? It's very true. You know, we know that male and female grads are in equal numbers when they leave university in architecture. And it is at that crossroads mid-career that we find a significant proportion of women choose to leave. And I don't know whether choose to leave is actually the right terminology because I think it's the systems, it's the processes that can make it really difficult to stay and be valued and do great work in the way that currently the system rewards people in doing great work. 
So all-nighters, really hard to do if you're caring for family members. And if you're not prepared to put in the time, do you even get the opportunity? Even though you might be the most talented individual, it's all about being available. And so there's lots of things that are possible to do to adjust these things, but we need the willingness and the voices from both ends of the spectrum. The leaders that have the power to influence the system to stand up and disrupt and do things differently to ensure that all talent gets access to opportunities and you retain it for the good of the profession, as well as individuals to say, that's not on. It's not appropriate to have the expectation that I work through the night. That's not good for my well-being. And there's a lot of work being done around architecture and well-being. And we know that the way that the industry is currently set up, it is negatively impacting well-being across the whole profession. And as an external observer, it is quite shocking to see how the Australian population generally compares to people in architecture. And it breaks my heart because I think, my goodness, these are the people that design the spaces that we work and live in, and they're under pressure, not being able to deliver the best possible experience because of the way the systems have been set up. But to change that requires courage from all ends of the spectrum. Current formal leaders collectively standing up and saying we need to change it. And that's what Champions of Change is all about. As well as our current cohort of employees saying, I want more. I don't want to leave this industry, but you're forcing me to because they have better options over there. And you're right, most of the options that people opt out of the architecture profession tends to be in corporates that have a very transparent way of managing careers. And that, you know, the hours are stable. You get rewarded for output and outcomes, not time in office, not doing the all-nighters. You're able to flex your career around the demands of whether that's caring for elderly parents or side hustle or caring for younger children. And so there is a lot the profession can do to move towards becoming more equitable and really harnessing the talent that is just tremendous within the profession. Like I am blown away with the amount of talent that is there, but it breaks my heart when I see them move out because the way that the system is designed at the moment, I think it either breaks people or makes people. And the people that it makes tend to have a lot of commonality around them, able to invest a lot of time at work and trade off their health and wellbeing and that of their family for others. And I just don't think in 2022 that's sustainable anymore. And I encourage everyone to be part of that change. Thanks, Jess. That is a very thoughtful response. I think I started the question way too simplistic because I think it's absolutely critical to admit that though our topic today is gender pay gap, it is not just about remuneration because I think the myriad of factors that contribute to that is something I think the audience probably find even more close to their heart because we are talking about the architecture profession here and certainly what you just described is very, very evident across all facets of our work. 
And I think to your point that definitely if the environment is not suitable to allow one to do their best work, then you'd not have the motivation to perform, recognition doesn't come through, and then naturally it does affect uh, how pay is distributed, you know, inevitably. So I think it's a great way to actually reframe that topic because it's not just about a number and a statistic because we want more people invest in the details of it to make little changes to make a big impact. And I think to finalise this topic, how do you see us progressing from here? Where's this new trajectory? Because I think we've progressed a long way now and we may have really excelled in the past few years because you've touched on policies that are now implemented where flexible working conditions help level out carers' responsibility. Pay is being audited across the board to allow for a commitment to make a change in minimising the gap. And I think leaders are definitely conscious of what bias can mean in their recruitment process, in how they build teams, and even how they set up a culture within the workplace. Do you see where there's new areas or areas that will be making further changes that makes a difference in the upcoming years? Yeah, I do. And I think it's important to note that the hurdles will keep changing, that, you know, just when we think we've reached one stage, a new level of expectation is coming. And so this is a constant iteration of what does good look like? You know, if people, I'm sure, you know, from 15 years ago were able to time portal into what we have now, they'd be like, oh, my God, I can't believe that we have all this now. But what's that going to look like in another 15 years' time? And so we need to be constantly iterating to make that happen. Some of the specific things that we're doing is we know the Workplace Gender Equality Agency does great work and we're wanting to do some work within the architecture profession and we have an action group set up to actually review the gender pay gap within architecture and look at what we can do to put some specificity around the profession more closely to you know, I guess remove the, the levels of layers that can really contribute to compelling and shocking pay gaps. So we're doing that work as part of the Champions of Change and, and our hope is that as we look to trial it and create case studies from it, all practices will be able to, to lean into that no matter their size. And I think the other key thing is for those people that are listening today, the Workplace Gender Equality Agency offers full transparency. So you can actually go onto their website, you can search up your employer or potentially competitor employers, and you've got that transparency there. As long as they have more than 100 employees, they have to report to the agency. And so I would really encourage you to do your own research. Go out there and ask the questions. And if your practice is doing great things, share it with others. And if your practice is a little bit behind the eight ball, be transparent around your expectation as an employee because you are key talent and people will want to retain you. And sometimes it just takes those great conversations to bring to the forefront what's important. And if you don't talk about it, no one can read your mind so they can't do anything about it. That is excellent. I think that's a very great way to close it. <laughs> and I think we might do a, one extra sub-segment and then you might be edited out. Because <laughs> I think what's really good was that during our previous conversations, you reminded me that as the world is shifting, there's a lot of uncertainty. And I think what's not to be mistaken is that our careers are very different from a generation ago. You reminded me that many of us will have a, you know, work professional life of uh, a very long tenure. I can't <laughs> begin to comprehend it. We might be working for a very long time. Yeah. How does that 
adjust to the way we should approach our professional life and how we may begin to approach it differently beyond just seeing that number that's uh, been spoken about today. Yeah, and this is something that I'm really passionate about because what we need to understand is that we are all living longer and there's a fantastic book out there. I've forgotten the authors off the top of my head, but it's all about the 100-year-old life. And what it talks about is that we need to reframe how we view life stages. So typically, education, career, retirement. Now, that worked really well in the industrial era and, you know, 20 years ago when we were all retiring at, you know, the age of 55 and obviously having a much shorter lifespan, these days lifespans are actually around the 100 year mark. You know, I'm in my mid 40s and statistically I have a greater chance of living to 100 now more than ever. And my child, you know, even more so. So what does that mean? It means we need to reframe our careers. It's no longer a sprint, it's a marathon. And so, you know, I talk about careers being three phases. Early career being the first 20 years, mid-career being the next 20 years, and late-stage career being the final 20 years. And if you're good at maths, that means you're working for 60 years. And I honestly think we need to frame it up that way because if we're doing work that we're passionate about, if we're living the life that we want to lead and we're contributing to society, then why wouldn't you want to work? And so with that frame in mind, you don't need to reach a certain milestone by a certain age. It is really about picking your adventure, your career of choice and mapping out that ladder that works for you. And it might not be a ladder where it's a vertical up, it might be a lattice where it goes up and down, across, sideways, completely different break because you're reskilling, re-educating. You know, these are all the things that are actually open to us and it gives us far more opportunity than ever before. And so whilst most people might groan thinking, oh my gosh, I'm gonna be working until I'm 80, I'm of the different mindset, which means I'm going to be learning until I'm 80. I'm going to be exposing myself to new ideas, great thinkers. You know, I'm going to have access to a whole range of different age groups around me in the workplace. And that's something that I want to embrace. So for me, it's about having conversations now to say, you're not on the same career path as your parents were, as the people that are leading the practice are. And so we need to redesign what career means to each of us, and it really is choose your own adventure. So with that in mind, that comes down to you taking action. Only you can map out what works best for you. And I think we're gonna find that, you know, that's how workplaces will change, is that there is not one way to do things, there's multiple ways, and we need the flex to drive that. Thanks, Jess. It's been a great discussion today. This has been Hearing Architecture, proudly sponsored by Brickworks. Thank you so much for listening and thank you so much to our guest in this episode, Dr Jess Murphy from the Champions of Change Architecture Group. Thank you so much for everything you're doing to help the architecture profession address the issues of gender equity wherever you're seeing it happen. Our sponsor Brickworks also produce architecture podcasts hosted by modernist fanatic and comedian Tim Ross. You can find The Art of Living, Architects Abroad and The Power of Two at brickworks.com.au or your favourite podcast platform. 
The more support we get from you, the more episodes we get to make. So if you'd like to show your support, please rate, review and subscribe to Hearing Architecture in your favourite podcast app. If you want to know more about what the Australian Institute of Architects is doing to support architects and the community, please visit architecture.com.au. This is a production by the Australian Institute of Architects Emerging Architects and Graduates Network in collaboration with Open Creative Studio. The Institute production team was Madeline Jenkins and Claudia McCarthy. And the Imagine production team was Sally Sue. Written and directed by Daniel Moore. This content is brought to you by the Australian Institute of Architects Emerging Architects and Graduates Network in collaboration with Open Creative Studio. This content does not take into account specific circumstances and should not be relied on in that way. This content does not constitute legal, financial, insurance or other types of advice. You should seek independent verification of advice before relying on this content in circumstances where loss or damage may result. The Institute endeavours to publish content that is accurate at the time it is published, but does not accept responsibility for content that may or will become inaccurate over time.